out of Isaiah 53. Brother Lumford's sermon this morning is on joy in the gospel. <coughs> and as a, a base for that, we need to understand what the gospel is, that the gospel is about Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. And so this is an Old Testament prophecy of that event, and it speaks marvelously to the, um, <clears throat> what was actually happening behind the man that was hanging on the cross. Let's begin reading. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. sobering reminder to us from Isaiah about the nature of this gift, the cost of this gift, the struggle and suffering and pain of this gift. And you know, this time of year, our world is all about uh, celebration, all about joy, all about happiness, all about gifts and good feelings and experiences. And this morning I want us to reflect a bit on the other side of Christmas. I want you to think about what made Christmas possible. I want you to think about that from the divine perspective. 
God himself, leaving the glories and riches and splendor of heaven and coming to this earth, coming to surrender to the torture, to the torment, to the limitations, to the dirt, to the tiredness, to the pain of this broken world. Those whom he had made for himself would kill the Son of God. That's the divine perspective. I want you to think about the human perspective. I want you to think about what happened, what was going through the mind, perhaps, of Mary and Joseph as they made their way to Bethlehem. The shame of an unmarried woman with child. The rough, bumpy, unpleasant ride on that donkey. Those of you who have been great with child, you know what I'm talking about. Think about what must have been going through Joseph's mind as he contemplated what to do with this woman that he was betrothed to and how he would respond to the accusations and the innuendo and the rumors and how he would care for this child that wasn't his. And think about what happened when they got to Bethlehem and they found that there was no room in the inn and they were relegated to sleeping in the barn, giving birth to a child in very unsanitary, not very comfortable kinds of conditions. And then the running for their lives when they found out that Herod had discovered and attempt, was attempting to kill all of the, ch- of the children under two years of age. Think about that side of Christmas. Now think about it for yourself. This is a happy time of year, they say. But many of us, for many of us, this season of the year brings some struggle, some memories that aren't so pleasant. What are we going to do with that? Are we still going to find joy in life? in the Christian life? You see, we live in an era where it seems that everybody is desperately trying to be happy. I think this is probably uniquely an American phenomenon as well. Part of the Declaration of Independence states that men are to be free to pursue life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so people today, especially in this country, see this pursuit of happiness as a right. This emotion of happiness is seen as a right that dare not be infringed upon. Nobody had better get in the way of my happiness. And so 
You deserve it, they say. You deserve to be happy. You have the right to be happy. So go do whatever it takes to make you happy. Go buy that new car. Go uh, buy those new clothes. Go on that dream vacation that you cannot afford. Get a new spouse or run around on your current spouse if they're not making you happy. Whatever it takes to make you happy, that's what you need to do. That's the message of our world. And so people run from one experience to another, from one purchase to another. All the while, we have one of the highest rates of depression and suicide that this country has ever seen. Especially in young people, who historically were the least likely to suffer in these ways. So it's obvious there's a problem And many of us can point the finger at various things as the cause of the problem. But the question is, ought you to be happy? Ought you to be abundantly happy, joyful? Is there something wrong with the pursuit of happiness? I say not. What is wrong is the pursuit of happiness for the wrong end and in the wrong way. So how about you today? On this, a couple of days before Christmas, which is supposed to be the happiest, most joyful time of the year. Are you happy? Are you joyful? Do you want to be happy? Does the desire to be happy motivate your financial decisions? Does it motivate your relationship decisions? Or don't you care about being happy? Maybe maybe you are more righteous than all of that. Maybe you are one of those glum-faced Christians whom people look at and say, if being a Christian does that to you, (laughs) I don't want to be one. Or maybe... Maybe you put on a happy face, but deep down inside you struggle with intense depression. You struggle and you think that nobody understands. And that if you would tell somebody, they would think that you aren't a very good Christian. Or maybe you are suffering with some very painful situations and issues in your life. And happiness and joy seem like a long way off. Perhaps you look at what is happening in the world around you and you get depressed and discouraged. How can anybody be happy when the conditions are the way they are? Maybe Mary and Joseph were feeling that way some 2,000 plus years ago. Maybe they were wondering where the joy was, where the happiness was. Well, whatever your situation, whatever your experience, whatever your feelings, this morning I want to address this issue of joy and happiness in the life of the Christians. Should Christians be happy, joyful people? Absolutely. 
problem is not the happiness and the joy. The problem is, where do we look for that happiness, for that joy? In what do we trust when the happiness and joy seem to elude us? Where do we go when we suffer pain and depression and agony of spirit and soul? When we struggle, what do we do with that? Is there any joy in that? Now first let me say that Jesus, I believe, indicated that his followers should expect to be happy. Just read the first couple of verses of Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes. Blessed are you. The word blessed really means happy, incredibly happy, joyful. And throughout the Bible, God's people are called to be joyful people. Now you say, well, that's easy enough for people who have everything going well for them, whose relationships and occupations are successful. Surely it's easy to be happy when you are financially secure, when everybody thinks well of you. Now, if you thought I was going to tell you that's the way the Christian life is, you're going to be disappointed. Because actually the Bible says something different. The Bible says that the Christian life is not all that glorious, that it's full of pain and suffering and persecution and struggle. It's downright dangerous. It can be incredibly discouraging. But, even in that, even because of that, there is joy. There is joy. And so you can and you must have joy even in the face of the greatest difficulties and discouragements that you will ever face. And you say, well, how is that possible? Well, the instructions to be happy, the instructions to be joyful found throughout the Bible call us over and over and over again to rejoice in our suffering. Not just rejoice in spite of our suffering, but rejoice in our suffering. But how do we do that? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but you don't understand how bad my life is. If you understood, you wouldn't expect me to be joyful and happy. Well, let's get a little perspective here. So you think you have it bad, and you might. You think you have some rough days as a Christian. I'm sure you do. I'm not making fun of that at all. <clears throat> but you don't know what rough is. You don't know what bad is until you are shipwrecked and washed up on an island and promptly bit by a poisonous snake. That's a bad day. Or how about countless beatings, often near death, being lashed with 39 lashes five different times, three times beaten with rods, being stoned and left for dead, in near constant danger from rivers, robbers, the sea, the wilderness, and in constant danger from false brothers who would report you to the authorities, and even danger from your own people when you forget, who forgets you when the going gets tough. How about incredible economic hardship, even though you work your fingers to the bone, sewing tents, living in almost perpetual hunger and cold and exposure to the elements. And then to top this all off, the constant pressure and anxiety that comes with the responsibility to care for the souls of all the people in the many churches you have started. No, you don't have it bad compared to the Apostle Paul. You live on easy street compared to the Apostle Paul. You shouldn't have any problem with joy now, should you? 
Well, you want me to rub it in some more? How about this? In spite of all these difficulties and depressing circumstances, the Apostle Paul was by all accounts one of the most joyful characters in the Bible. He declares his joyfulness in almost every letter that he writes, in every situation that he finds himself in. He encourages and exhorts the churches that he is writing to to be joyful as well. He mentions the word joy, rejoicing, and enjoy well over 70 times in his letters. So what, is the, what was the source of this amazing joy that the Apostle Paul experienced and encouraged others to have? even in the face of incredible difficulty and pressure. What should be the source of your joy in the comparatively easy and prosperous life that you enjoy? The answer is we are to find our joy in the gospel. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we will look at in more detail here, and we will see where the Apostle Paul's joy and where our joy must come from. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured, in, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we see here three reasons for joy in the Christian life because of the gospel. Number one, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We see that in verses 1 and 2. The second thing we see as a reason for joy in the gospel is in verses 3 and 5, we rejoice in our suffering. And the third thing that we see is in verse 11, we rejoice in God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we think about Christmas and as we think about both sides of Christmas, we see this pattern continuing throughout the gospel where joy and rejoicing come from suffering. This is the path that God uses. Yes, we like to think about the incarnation, the, the, the joyful experience of the gifts. And yes, we like to think about the resurrection on the other side of that experience. But there's death that comes in the middle. This was a child born to die. 
We cannot have resurrection without death. We cannot have life without death. We cannot have abundant, joyful life without suffering. And so we must find a way through this suffering. What keeps us going even when things don't look good from an earthly perspective? Where do we find our joy when the world around us is a mess, when our own soul is a mess? The answer is found in the hope that we have in God, the hope that we have in the future, the hope of the glory of God that will be revealed. He reveals this glory both in our ongoing salvation in this life and ultimately in the completed salvation of the next life. And it says here in verse 1 that through faith we have become reconciled to God. We are at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So, the biggest hurdle has already been overcome. God has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself, to be partakers of his glory. If we have that level of peace, why should unrest in our world or unrest in our soul trouble us? You see, that hope is founded not on how we feel or what we experience or what somebody does to us, that hope is founded upon the work of God and the glory of God. The reality that God has justified us and given us access to the power, the power supply of heaven, the grace of God. So even though we face incredible obstacles and adversity, and even though the circumstances of this life seem to be working against us, and even though we may be struggling in our inner being, we can have this quiet and sure confidence in the glory of God. One old writer says this, the reason that the hope of a future life exists and that we dare to exalt in it is this, because we rest on God's favor as on a sure foundation. For Paul's meaning here in Romans 5 is that Though the faithful are now pilgrims on the earth, they yet by hope climb to the heavens so that they may quietly enjoy in their own bosoms their future inheritance. The hope of the glory of God has shown upon us through the gospel, which testifies that we shall be participants of the divine nature. For when we shall see God face to face, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now let us be clear, this joy, this rejoicing is not based on our ability. It is based on God's glory. It's not based on our ability to perceive it correctly or it's not based on the quality of our faith. This joy, this rejoicing is based on the object of our faith. It is based on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We have Peace with God. This is not something that we might have or something that we potentially have. It is something that we for sure have if we have trusted him. If we have been justified, then we have peace with God. The verb tense here is the, the perfect tense, which means that this peace with God is an ongoing and permanent action. 
we have had, we are having, we will have peace with God. Now this does not always mean that we will actually recognize or feel this. There will be days, hours, maybe weeks and months when we will not feel this way. In fact, we often go through life ignorant or unaware of the riches that are ours in Christ. This doesn't change the reality of those riches. It doesn't change the reality that those riches and those, that grace of God exists and is ours. The Apostle Paul realized that we need to be reminded of these glorious things. In Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that God would show us the reality of the riches that, that are ours in Christ. Listen to to how he prays for the Ephesians and for us. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We need to be reminded of this, this hope of the glory of God. The basis of our hope is the sureness, the steadfastness, the faithfulness of God. Our joy, our rejoicing, are the result of something that is not fickle or fleeting, not dependent on human emotion or will, but dependent upon and the result of the very glory of God himself, which is unending and eternal. That is where we find our joy. In fact, this is the definition of faith. If you back up one chapter to Romans chapter 4, we see this description of Abraham and his faith in verse 18 through 22. It says, Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So if your hope if your hope is in anything or anyone else other than in Jesus Christ, you're not going to have joy. You can't have joy. But if your hope is in God and the sure promises of God and the glorious work of God and the glorious riches of grace and power of God, then you can have joy even in the face of Incredible difficulty. Abraham, nearly 100 years old, trusted that God was 
right, that God knew what he was talking about when he said, your offspring will be like the sand of the sea, like the stars in the heavens. And he says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. His own body was nearly dead. But that didn't deter him because his trust, his faith, his confidence was not in himself, but in God. So when we find ourselves in discouraging situations and our joy is not full, we need to be reminded. We need to remind ourselves of the reality that is ours in Christ and the glory that awaits us. What are some ways we can do this? How do we do this? Well, we must read his word. The revelation of the glory of God. That's what this is. The stories of the faith of God's people like Abraham. And the stories of the difficulties of circumstance like the Apostle Paul that we've already recounted. We read that and we say, whoa, I don't have it so bad after all. We have find hope in the glory of God when we read his word. We must be in prayer. Not so much asking God to remove the discouragement, to remove the suffering, as asking for God to reveal to us his glory and give us grace to deal with whatever he has given us. We must worship God through the giving of praise and thanksgiving. This act of praising God, even in spite of or in the face of great suffering, this praising God reminds us of who he is and what he's done and keeps us from being self-centered. The act of giving to God, even when we think we ought to be hoarding our resources for our own protection, that stepping out in faith and saying, God, I'm willing, I'm willing to give even though I don't know how you will provide. To trust him cultivates within us the faith that Abraham had and the faith that we must have if we're going to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The second thing that we find here is that we, we must rejoice in our suffering. You see, this passage here in Romans 5 doesn't stop with the reminder of the future glory that awaits us, with the glory of God. Joy in the Christian life doesn't revolve around an escapist mentality that says, just get me out of here. No, joy in the Christian life comes not only in spite of difficult circumstances, but because of suffering and difficult circumstances. We know that peace with God does not necessarily bring peace on earth. We know that. We know that peace with God does not necessarily bring ease and enjoyment of life, does not necessarily bring freedom from illness and sickness. The actual conditions of life, especially for believers in the midst of a hostile society, are not necessarily easy or pleasant. And yet we have cause to rejoice in our suffering. In fact, these things are necessary for us. Jesus himself said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So suffering in the Christian life is not optional. It's necessary. Listen to this from Acts 14. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Do you get that? They just stoned him. They drug him outside and left him for dead. And what does he do? He goes back in. Now listen to what he says about this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, went back again, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now you say, that Apostle Paul, he was a glutton for punishment, wasn't he? No. He understood something about the nature of suffering. He understood that the way God's kingdom works is by joy in suffering, by glory in suffering. That good things come out of bad things. That life comes out of death. The reason we rejoice in our sufferings is because we know that God uses these things for our sanctification, for our spiritual growth, growth in Christ-likeness. You want to be like Christ? That means suffering. You look at Christ's life. It means suffering. And it says here in Romans 5, the suffering produces in us the kind of character that only God can produce. And this kind of character is not produced without suffering. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life. None. You show me a great man or woman of God. You show me a joyful, confident, faithful Christian, and I will show you a person who has suffered. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that this suffering we endure will bring about in character. This endurance produces character, and ultimately it says produces hope in God. Now we're back to the hope of the glory of God again. This suffering, this unpleasant circumstances, this opposition, brings us to God. It drives us to God. As we've already learned, this hope will not let us down. It will not dis disappoint this hope does not put us to shame, verse 5, because it is grounded in the undeniable and unfailing love of God. Not only do we rejoice in our suffering because of what it does for us, but we also rejoice in our suffering because it overflows to benefit others. In the midst of suffering, God's love is poured out. Here it says, God's love is poured out in the midst of suffering poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this love then overflows for the benefit of others in much the same way that Christ's sufferings benefit us. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we suffer 
And we trust in God, we rejoice in our suffering so that we can minister to others who are suffering. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, see there, there it's coming all the way from God, through Christ to us, to others. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you will also share in our comfort. So we see that suffering and affliction are necessary and good, not only for our joy for the joy in our individual Christian lives, but also for joy in ministry to others. This is especially true in Christian service and ministry. You won't be able to effectively minister to others unless you have experienced joy in suffering. You won't be able to build up a church without suffering. Jesus didn't. The Apostle Paul didn't, and you won't. So you want to be successful in contributing to the life of this congregation? Then count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So don't shy away from the suffering from the struggle. Don't just try to escape it. See the purpose of God in it. Count it all joy. But the only way you will be able to do this, the only way you will be able to, sur to survive this is if your hope is ultimately and finally and fully in Jesus Christ. If you are looking elsewhere for your joy, you will be destroyed. Now let us also remind ourselves that suffering and self-denial for the sake of success in selfish or worldly terms is never going to bring you joy either. We can see many Christians today who are suffering and they think they are suffering for Christ so they kind of grin and bear it because they know they're supposed to. But they have no real joy because their heart and affections are not set firmly on Christ. They don't value Christ above all else. You know, I used to read these verses about suffering and joy, and I used to think, wow, that takes some pretty supernatural people. That must be some kind of other kind of joy. Like, not the actual happy kind of joy, but like this, uh, yeah, I'm happy. No. It's actual, real joy. Happiness, even, in the face of suffering. Because we see what is beyond it. We see that good things, right things, come because of suffering. We value Christ above all else, and He suffered, and He's made a way for us to suffer well, to suffer with joy. So how about us? How are we doing when things go the way we think they shouldn't? How are we doing when people wrong us 
Do we rest in the grace of God? Do we experience joy in God? Do we keep on loving people out of our suffering? Or do we forget the grace of God? Do we overflow with complaining and become self-absorbed and critical instead of loving? It's a good test for us to find out where our hope really is. Are we like the Christians written, written about in the letter to the Hebrews? Where it says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You see, if you have a better possession, if you have a more sure hope, then you can endure anything with joy. But if this life is all you've got, and if your money is all you've got, and if your relationships are all you've got, and they're taken away, there's no joy. There's nothing but despair and heartache. These Hebrew Christians knew what was really valuable, what was really important. And it wasn't their property or their reputation or the kinds of friends they had or the numbers of people in their church or the size of the church building. No, they had a better possession, one that never fails, that's never destroyed. That is Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our final point. Rejoicing in God through Jesus Christ. Not only do we rejoice in the gifts that God gives us through peace with himself, not only do we rejoice because of the glory, the hope of the glory of God, and not only do we rejoice because of our sufferings, but now we rejoice in God himself, in the giver himself. You see, before we were saved, we found our joys elsewhere. Now, we exalt whenever we remember him. What has produced this marvelous change? What has produced this change so that we can now be glad in God, rejoice in God? Well, it is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here, we rejoice in verse 11, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is the work of Christ that has produced this joy. And again, this work of Christ was fraught with all kinds of suffering. Verses 6 through 10 here in Romans 5 are the message of the gospel in a nutshell. Here's how it works. Very upside down. The godly dies for the ungodly so that the ungodly can be godly. The rich becomes poor so that the poor become rich. The sinless Son of God becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Get your mind around that one time if you can. Now this is in contrast to what our natural human capabilities are. We don't tend to do it like this. We might suffer, it says, and die for another, 
but only if we think the other person is worth dying for. But God shows his great love towards us that while we were his enemies, he died for us. While we were under his righteous condemnation of wrath, he sent his only son to die for us, to purchase our redemption, to reconcile us to himself. God would have been perfectly just to allow us to suffer his wrath, which is the consequence of our sin. But he loved us, and he gave himself for us. So in essence, we are not ultimately saved from our sin, although we are. It's a big part of salvation. We are not even saved from ourselves, although that too is a part of our salvation. Ultimately, we are saved from God. We are saved from the wrath of God. And God saves us from himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we can be reconciled to a perfect holy and just God. No one else could do this because no one else was perfect. Only God himself can save us from himself. And so, we rejoice in God. God himself is the source of every good thing, including our joy. We delight in God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But there is one more word I want you to notice here in this last verse. One word that is the key, I believe, to our joy. And that is the word, Lord. We rejoice in God through our Lord, Jesus Christ. The Greek word here is kurios, which means he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding Master, Lord, the owner, one who has control of the person, the master, the sovereign, the prince, the chief. That is who we're talking about. This word basically means owner, slave master. And this infers that by calling him Lord, by acknowledging him as Lord, we belong to him, we obey him, we are his servants, his slaves. He owns us. He controls us. He is sovereign over us. He can do with us as he sees best. Are you ready to make that kind of declaration? Are you ready, ready to surrender to that kind of person? Only only if you understand that God is glorious, that God is holy and loving and just and merciful, that he has purchased your redemption, then you must trust in Christ who will do everything for the good, even the suffering in your life, even the struggle in your soul even the broken relationships and persecution and hardship. If he is Lord, if he is master, you can experience joy 
in those things. This is so important to understand. We are dependent on Him completely. All of the benefits of salvation, including our joy in God, are dependent on God Himself. And joy will only be experienced by those who surrender to His Lordship. If we do our own thing, if we go our own way, we will not experience the joy of the gospel. We will not experience the joy in God himself. Instead, we will face his wrath, his judgment. The psalm that Dalton read earlier, Psalm 32, reminds us how this is. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So sometimes maybe the reason why you're not experiencing joy, why you're experiencing sorrow, sometimes it might be because you're not trusting in the Lord. Maybe you've brought these things on yourself through your sinful actions and choices. You must repent. You must come to Christ and surrender. To repent, to confess. As long as we are holding out for our own interests, we will not be experiencing His joy. As long as we are calling any of the shots, we cannot expect that he will provide these benefits for us. When we are reconciled to God through trusting confidence in Christ Jesus, then and only then can we enjoy all the blessings that flow from God. And this only happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ who is our master. So, Are you delighting in God? Do you experience joy in God? Well, you cannot delight in Him. You cannot experience joy in Him when you're fighting against Him. Perhaps you're not yet reconciled to Him. And if that is the case, I urge you, I beg of you, believe, trust, repent, confess, Put your confidence in the only one who can bring you true joy. Maybe you are reconciled to God and you just forgot the benefits, the grace, the joy. Maybe you need to be reminded of what is ours in Christ. Maybe you're not experiencing the joy in God and in your suffering because you have forgotten what he's done. I will leave this encouragement with you from Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.